Hi, I'm Amy Porter, and this is my podcast. My mission is to show people how to empower themselves through music, business, and media. I try to see as clearly as possible how I can help. I showcase the music that I've played and the people I've met along the way. I'm a wife and a stepmom. You might know me as a professor, a performer, a producer, a publisher, a recording artist. I'm the founder of a couple of nonprofits. Welcome in to my Porter Flute Pod. Welcome to Porter Flute Pod. It's episode 15 in our third season, and I invited more friends from Juilliard to reunite with me and tell stories from our time at Juilliard in the 1980s and living in New York City. It's our Storytime podcast, and with me are co-producers Alan J. Tomasetti and Justine Sedke. We decided to invite two of my closest buddies, a girlfriend who's just a girlfriend and a neighbor who was just a neighbor, Rebecca Young and Robert Apostle. I went to the vault and found a sonata that's a favorite among flute players, Christopher Caliendo's Sonata Number no. 8. It's Movement 3. The Ride of the Headless Horseman. It tells an amazing ghost story, and I appreciate that I received the dedication and the premiere. Here I am performing with pianist David Gilliland. Welcome to Porter Flute Pod. I'm so glad you're here. Rebecca Young was one of my very first friends and she joined the New York Philharmonic in 1986 as one of its youngest members. In 1991, she won the position of Associate Principal Viola and two months later, she was named Principal Viola of the Boston Symphony Orchestra. After spending the 1992 and 1993 season in Boston and two summers at Tanglewood, she ultimately decided to return to her family in New York, resuming her associate principal position with the New York Philharmonic in September 1994. Today, she is the host of the Philharmonic's popular Very Young People's Concerts, intimate chamber music concerts where she's tapped, danced, and played drums, ridden a scooter around the stage, and even sung Gilbert and Sullivan. Her philosophy is less to educate than, as she puts it, to make the audiences have so much fun, they want to come back. Robert Apostle, also known as Bob, was my very first neighbor across the hall in New York City. He attended the Juilliard School, has a Bachelor of Music in Piano Performance, and a Master's of Arts in Theory and Composition from the Teachers College at Columbia University. Bob has been a music educator for the past 30 years at LaGuardia High School in New York City. His expertise is piano performance, songwriting, music theory, and he teaches AP music theory with a knowledge based off Arnold Schoenberg's theory of harmony and structural functions of harmony. (laughs) We're so excited to have my two friends from the 1980s at Juilliard reuniting with me. Welcome to our story time. Welcome to Porter Flute Pod. Thanks for having me. I have news for you. What's that? I don't play the flute. I know, right? Well, Porter Flute Pod is, this is our segment called Storytime. You and I have managed to continually keep in touch, and I couldn't not not just have story after story with you. So I have my French roast, you have your viola, and you <laughs> I'm know, not going to eat it. I'm going to eat can, my viola. Ready? Wait, hold on. I'm taking a bite. Taking a bite. <laughs> oh man, that's good. What about the Viola Mom Radio Hour? Could we get one of those going for you? Like, let's just well, do this, Becky. I have finally found my, I don't want to say my path, my rhythm. All right, let's start at the beginning. At the beginning of COVID, uh, or during COVID, I should say, I believe it was a year ago, actually right at a year ago, my daughter was over. She was 17 at the time. And 
she every time she would come over, she would say, because she was living with her dad, she would uh, make me do a TikTok. And I wouldn't really pay much attention. She'd say, Mom, do this, do this, do this. And, and I would do all the moves badly. I wasn't paying attention. I wasn't trying to do it well. I was just, yeah, whatever. And we did one where she made me look over her shoulder at this kid who was playing, you know, this is what you play for um, a beginning musician. And he played da 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 And he played pretty well. And I'm just looking, you know, she split the screen. She duetted it. The next one was this, um, it's in the same... TikTok, the guy says, this is what you play when you want to impress a, um, an intermediate player. Whatever. It's very impressive. And we're, I'm just staring at the screen and that's what you see. And the third thing he does is, this is what you play when you want to impress an advanced musician. Sibelius violin whatever. And my daughter looks up at me and you can't hear us. She has the mute on for us. But she looks up and she says, do something. Cause I didn't know what she, I'm just listening. And he sounded good. And so she said, do something. And I went, I'm impressed. I'm impressed. I must be an advanced musician. Woo, woo. That's it. Nothing big. 8 million views. I don't understand. It was fun to watch the numbers go up. So she said, let's do another one. Now all the people were saying, now we want to hear your mom play. This was her TikTok. We got to hear your mom play. So I played uh, here. I have the viola out here. So, oh, Badly, you know? something like that, something silly. They said, she, um, she said, this is by far the biggest request that I get. And it was for Devil Went Down to Georgia. Well, I don't know Devil Went Down to Georgia. So I, I listened to it and I went, oh, I can do that. And I played a little bit on another one and that did really well. And then the comments were like, uh, we like you, but we're here for your mom. She should get her own TikTok. So I did. And I went to our principal trombone player and I, who's a friend of mine, Joe Alessi, mighty Joe Alessi, I call him. I said, hey, Joe, would you play back and forth with me for a TikTok? And he went, sure, I, I can get him to do anything. He's, he's easy. And then his uh, daughter was there to film and that did pretty well. So, you know, then I was off and running and then I went to Cindy Phelps, my wife, I call her <laughs> practically because we <laughs> spent so much time together. Uh, and she did one and et cetera, et cetera. And, and you know what? I wasn't looking at numbers at that point. I was just having fun. And that's what all of this has been about. Took me forever, but I finally learned how to do Final Cut Pro. So now I can do things that are more technical, you know, fancy, longer, whatever I want to do. And, um, and, and so, but the thing is, and I also, for years and years, I've done the very young people's concerts. I've hosted the very young people's concerts at the Philharmonic. And those are not the young, not to be confused with the young people's concerts or <laughs> the young composers. Those are all, I mean, they need to do something with these names. I've been telling them for years. Of course, Rebecca Young is the person. The, the per great person to do the young people's and the, but anyway, um, I do those things and those are the, my favorite role in the Philharmonic. And unfortunately nobody at that age, three to six is vaccinated. Well, most, some of them aren't, most of them aren't. So we're not doing anything right now, but we should be, why can't we be putting them on film? Why can't we be sending them to schools or sending them to the parents of these? Anyway, so that's my mission is to, yeah. to kind of bring back, education to the you know music education but not to make it uh boring because you lose people when it, you lose me when it's boring i want to do something fun In 1982, my parents came home and told me they had found an apartment for me in New York City. I was going to be living there with two other people from the Philadelphia area. So I'd like to read to you about the Ansonia Hotel where I lived for four years in two different apartments. This building was erected between 1899 and 1904 and it's the, it was the largest residential hotel of its day. The exterior is Beaux-Arts style with a Parisian-style mansard roof. It has round turrets and at the corners and an open stairwell that sweeps up to a domed skylight. And 
the Ansonia, if you know it, it then was chopped up into little apartments. So I'd like to read to you a little bit about its history. So the residents lived in luxurious apartments with multiple bedrooms, parlors, libraries, and a formal dining room. And they were often round or oval. The apartments featured views north and south along Broadway, high ceilings, elegant moldings, and bay windows. There were 3,000 rooms. Arrangements could be made to rent a suite varying in size from a room and a bath to 30 rooms. Some of these suites were rented for $14,000 a year, the equivalent of more than $400,000 in 2018. The smaller units with one bedroom, a parlor, and a bath lacked kitchens. There was a central kitchen and serving kitchens on every floor so that residents could enjoy the services of professional chefs while dining in their own apartments. Besides the usual array of tea rooms, restaurants, and a grand ballroom, the Ansonia had Turkish baths and a lobby fountain with live seals. The architect-in-chief, William Earl Dodge Stokes, had also been an architect and responsible for developing much of New York's Upper West Side. He established a small farm on the roof of the hotel where he kept farm animals next to his personal apartment. There was a cattle elevator which enabled dairy cows to be stabled on the roof. Stokes had a utopian vision for the Ansonia that it could be self-sufficient or at least contribute to its own support which led to perhaps the strangest New York apartment amenity ever. Weddy Stokes wrote years later, the farm on the roof included about 500 chickens, many ducks, about six goats, and a small bear. Every day, a bellhop delivered free, fresh eggs to all the tenants, and any surplus was sold cheaply to the public in the basement arcade. The feature wasn't popular with the city government, however, and the Department of Health shut it down in 1907. There were some scandals and some movies made there and some notable residents. Musicians might know the operetta soprano Teresa Stratus or Toscanini and the filmmaker Ziegfeld and Enrique Caruso. So many people lived there. Uh, by the mid-20th century, the grand apartments had mostly been divided into studios and one-bedroom units, almost all of which retained their original architectural detail. I can tell you it was incredible. Um, and after a short debate in the 1960s, a proposal to demolish the building was fought off by many of its musical and artistic residents. From 1977 to 1980, the Ansonia Hotel's basement was the home to Plato's Retreat, an open-door sex club. Prior to Plato's Retreat, the building housed the Continental Baths, operated by Steve Ostro, a gay bathhouse where Bette Midler provided musical entertainment earlier in her career with Barry Manilow as her accompaniment. In 1992, the Ansonia was converted to a condominium apartment with 430 apartments. And by 2007, most of the rent-controlled apartment tenants had moved out, and the small apartments were sold to buyers who purchased clusters of apartments and threw them together to recreate grand apartments. The Ansonia is home to part of the New York campus of the American Musical and Dramatic Academy. So I, I really heartily welcome you, Bob Apostle, to Porter yeah. Pod. Every time I pass the Ansoni, I'm like, Amy Kay, Amy Kay. We used to call you Amy Kay. There it is, the Ansonia. Oh, man. Bob I, I, Apostle. It still doesn't, still doesn't get old. 
it still doesn't get old. So welcome to Porter Flu Pod and our Storytime platform where we we just tell stories. Mm-hmm. And I've told some stories, but I think you can tell them better. So mm-hmm. we'll start with where we lived and where we met and how mm-hmm. we lived. Because what happened was you lived with a pianist, Jeffrey That's Beagle, true. who yep. is one of the world's greatest pianists mm-hmm. alive. Mm-hmm. And then I lived with... A woman named Amy, who is still my friend. She lives in Taiwan. Mm-hmm. And so two Amys, but then a woman who really had it out for me. She yes. really did. I don't know I where she was. One. Okay. So, right. And so you pretty much, I would go visit you a lot, mm-hmm. right? We had this great friendship where we'd take off and go. Did You You reminded me we heard Frank Zappa? Yes, we went to, a, we went to, um, you had tickets to um, an event that Zappa was, going to speak at and it was like hey you want to come down it's like there's um there'll be food and drinks and zap is speaking it was like well okay so you know and we went and we had a ball and frank zappa we were 20 20 feet away from listening to zappa speak and unfortunately that's the only time i ever saw zappa but i'm so glad you know that i had the opportunity you know that was back in the day when all these guys were alive and we we were, they were circulating and we were kind of circulating somehow with them, you know, and that was the coolest. That was very cool. Somehow. I have yeah. no idea. Yeah. So we lived in this building and AJ Tomasetti was asking me, okay, you keep saying Ansonia hotel. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I went to Wikipedia just to confirm. Mm-hmm. And yes, this was at some point like a, an apartment um, hotel, but I have to say, Bob, that I was a swimmer coming into Juilliard. I'd been on the swim team. So every time I entered the Ansonia, I'd come in through the very first doors and I'd smell chlorine. Mm -hmm. And I'd think, where's the pool? Mm -hmm. And then I'd go to the front desk and I'd check, get my mail and go up in the hotel and, you know, and I'd go to my apartment. So these were apartments. Well, I'd leave the building. I'd still smell chlorine. And this was about the first two or three years of my existence. And guess what the chlorine was, Bob? It was a swimming pool. Plato's retreat in the basement (laughs) where Bette Midler was getting her career started. Oh, my God. That's right. That's right. They also I think they might have turned that into the uh, American Academy of Drama. That's a school down there. I don't I think it kind of was starting when we were there. But um, I I faintly remember that. Oh, boy. Yeah, it was one of my naive senses. I was 17. You know, you never That's, even. I'm, I'm glad I'm glad you brought that back into my into my memory. <laughs> well, the Ansonia had these apartments and they had parquet floors. They had uh, what? 12 foot ceilings to 15 foot ceilings. And they had um, thick walls and they had beautiful windows. And then they we'd smush three people in one room. Well, they broke up. They broke up the apartments. They broke them they up did. into condos when we a few years before we went in. And and part of our leisure hanging out was, I mean, we had the gumption to walk around and meet people and and see apartments. Some of the most incredible, you know, old, old world, you know, New York City apartments. You know, I mean, I'm still impressed by some of the some of the places we saw. And um, that 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 staircase and the, the whole the, the the Ansonia. I mean, it was it's it's still this little jewel up there on Seventy Third Street. And of course, they had Vinnie's Pizzeria across, across the street. Oh my God! Remember that? But oh, the staircase. Yeah. We'd sit on the staircase and just chat. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, it was incredible. Mm-hmm. The Ansonia, and then we'd run to school. Well, you know. There was the time that I remember there was um, a, a friend of ours. I, I believe his name was Odin. Odin was a violinist. Um, and we'd go up to the roof and um, hang out on the roof and have the view of the park and the, of, the, of the river. And mm-hmm. once, the, um, once the door shut behind us and we got locked up on the roof. And this is a real story. It seems surreal, but it happened. And um, there was the old elevator shaft. And um, there was a phone in there and we called down to the lobby and they were like, what are you rascals who go to that school down the, (laughs) what are you rascals who who go to that conservatory down the block? What are you doing? And they came up and they let us out and it was, (laughs) 
It was beautiful up there. On Wikipedia, it says they had a whole farm up there on that roof. (laughs) It was was beautiful. They had those towers, the towers with the um, with the ladders that went up to the top there that we occasionally went up to, too. Oh, my gosh. Which was incredible. 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 Mm -hmm. Come on. If you live in Manhattan, you go on the roof. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. By the time you were 19, you were auditioning uh, for the New York Philharmonic. So how did you get there? You practiced a lot, right? I was 20. No, I didn't practice a lot. Maybe I mean, I played a lot, but um, there were, I had roommates and there was one roommate in particular who practiced and practiced and she was always practicing, which is kind of annoying if you're somebody's roommate and they're always practicing. But um, I I remember telling myself, God, if I had to practice that much, I would not be doing this. (laughs) You know, I just couldn't be in this, in this uh, uh, profession. Um, But I practiced, I did practice. um, And I had the, I found the bathroom on the first floor by Paul Hall in Juilliard, right? Nobody went in there. And there was kind of a lounge area. And then you go in where the toilets are. So I had the lounge area. I went in there and that was my private practice room because nobody else thought of it. Um, And you know what it sounds like in a bathroom. You sound great. So it's very encouraging to practice. You know, I don't know what I, maybe that's not such a great thing because sometimes if you practice in a place that makes you sound crappy, then you work harder to sound good. But here I always sounded really good. It's like, whoa, listen to that sound. But it encouraged me to practice. And um, I don't know, I had a lot of friends. I used to do goofy things. Like if we had chamber music uh, at the end of the chamber music rehearsal, I would say, let's all sing our parts. And they would say, what? What? Come on. I'm like, no, no, no. Put your fiddle down. Put your cello down. Let's sing our parts. I love that. And we would sing our parts. And people would be looking in the door like, what the heck is going on? We were howling. I mean, we were laughing, and, and but we were singing. And, and what, we weren't doing it for musical purposes. Some people do that because they want to figure out the phrasing and, and dynamic, whatever. <clears throat> Excuse me. But I just... I just wanted to mess around and, and that was a fun way to do it. Do you I remember kind of, do you remember the day we found out that you and me and John Manassi had were the three freshmen that got into the Juilliard Orchestra? Uh to the yeah, there were four orchestras, I think, at the time, weren't there? Four orchestras, and we got into the top as a freshman. You, me, John Manassi. I just remember yeah. that kind of bonded us, I think, at the very beginning it of did. life. And then and then when the um, orchestra went on tour, I was, I think I was the only freshman that went. And that was, I, I was like, I wish Amy and John were here. I went, there were two buses, the nerd bus and the cool bus. And I was on the nerd bus and I, well, it started out on the cool bus. I would hand out all the drinks to people. And then um, they were flashing the, the, the guy. Oh God, who was it? Evan Wilson. Well, and um, Nadia Salerno Sonnenberg, they were mooning the people on the other bus, right? In the, from the back. <laughs> And um, anyway, I eventually got smoked off of that one, and I went on the nerd bus and had so much more fun. I sat with, uh, what was his name? Werner, the driver, <laughs> and uh, changed the, the the radio and did stuff like that. I didn't have much fun with my friends, but my friends were at home. Well, okay. So do you remember the day in the lobby of the Juilliard School on the way out to 66th Street that you looked at me and you were pooping yourself? You were like... I made the finals. I don't know what I'm going to do. How am I going to own this? It was imposter syndrome without knowing it was imposter syndrome. Do you remember that feeling? Yes. Uh, but for the record, I did not poop myself. Just so Okay, you know. fine. Okay, okay. But it was, so I auditioned. I was 20, by the way, not 19. I had just, I would turn 20. And I, Stanley Drucker was 19. I was 20. That's how that works. Okay. <laughs> he was the youngest. I was the second youngest, the youngest woman. And, um... Now I'm getting close to being the oldest woman, I think, in the orchestra. Anyway. um, No, you're not. There was a concert there at Juilliard. Remember Juilliard live at 80. And I had to miss the dress rehearsal for the finals of this concert. Were you in that one? I was totally in that one. Yeah, it's still in my resume. (laughs) 
<laughs> ah, that's funny. And um, they had to let me go. And what was his name? What was the name of the dean? Uh, Brunelli. Brunelli. Yes, we loved um, him. I had to tell him. He's like, yeah, okay, go get him. And I, he wasn't <laughs> happy that I had to miss the dress rehearsal, but what could you do? And I, nobody, including myself, uh, expected that I would win. So I thought I was just going to go play and then come back and play the Juilliard concert. Yep, I remember and that. I, I went and I played and... Uh, it all went really well because I had no expectation of winning the job. That's that's the secret, people. Don't don't want the job and then you'll be fine. It happened more than once for me. Um, but in any case, I came back and I played the audition. Oh, so I was saying it went really well. And then we got to Don Juan. And there's this big lick that goes up to the top there on the first page. And I missed it. The first thing I missed in the whole audition, but I missed the top, that top note. I looked out and Zubin said, try it again. So I went back a little bit and I tried the run again and I missed that top note. And then I stopped and I did it again and I tried and I missed again. And they said, thank you very much. And I left. And I was like, okay, whatever. I'll just go back and play the concert. Well, I got back to my apartment and at some point before the Juilliard show, uh, I got a phone call from Zubin Mehta saying, congratulations. We want you to play. They, they wanted me to play an extra six weeks before probation started because I was so young and I didn't have much professional experience. I had some with you, actually, Takahara. Um, but um, I went to the concert and I was stunned as anybody else. And, and people said, so how did it go? And I said, I won the job. And they went, what? Yeah. <laughs> so the whole night became kind of a celebration. Heart attack. Um, we all had a heart attack. You, yeah, you, continu- you continued to get a degree, right? So I did these six weeks and then I uh, went back to school um, and graduated on a Friday and uh, went to work at the Philharmonic on a Monday, that Monday, the following Monday. And that was that. I walked across the street and, you know, not terribly exciting. Do you know what I mean? I didn't go very far. (laughs) We were young. We were in kind of like the most incredible scene in New York with some of the most incredible people. And we were in the big city and it was like, you almost would have been, you know, not very smart to go out and see what the town had to offer. That's what it was all about. And that's, you know, and we took advantage of that. I remember, I remember before, like the night before Thanksgiving, um, we were walking around. We walked and we walked down to um, we walked down the Central Park West, and we saw all of the balloons that had not yet been inflated. Remember and that? Was, that was like, so fun. So surreal. It was like, oh my god! It was dark, and we were there, and it was like nobody would ever like the behind the scenes thing. And I'll never forget that. That was that was too cool. I mean, that was the Macy's Thanksgiving parade. You know, That's right. the, the night before, you know, so it was all those little things. I remember walking down to Columbus Circle, the whole um, circle was lit up with lights and they were the hours before they were shooting um, Ghostbusters. I remember that, too. <laughs> I remember the, all this. Yes. The Stay Puff Marshmallow Man. Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So much fun. We Absolutely. were. You have to have friends like you, Bob, just to say, hey, let's go. Let's go. We ended up still being at Theory at 830 in the morning. Uh, You are much better than I am, obviously, now ending up teaching AP Theory and things like that. Um, How did you get through Juilliard with your two teachers? I remember, you know, it wasn't easy for either of us. But uh, tell me what happened with, you know, the way you felt at Juilliard so that our students know we didn't just land as teachers or professors or performers. We we actually went through the process. It's it's the fact that we just had the wiring and the passion for our music. It was a struggle. It was it was a struggle to work at a world, you know, um, um, caliber level from the beginning and that was a struggle and it was hard and we were you we were constantly impressed by excellence that was hard to obtain and in some respects did not obtain you know 
that was just that was the periphery. You know, it, it, it that almost didn't make a difference. It was the fact that you wanted to pursue your your passion. You wanted to you you just wanted to work and you were so driven by the energy of the people we were with. Not not necessarily the faculty, but the students. And that was my greatest experience that that you couldn't trade or find ever um, anywhere, but being day and night in a school with some of the most incredible, you know, people and musicians. And we were fortunate. We went to school with, you know, with um, three majors, the drama and the dance. And I had wonderful drama friends. And I had, you know, and I always sought out all of these different people. I had my pianist friends, but I had... You know, I had great friends, you know. I remember. Wendell Pierce. I oh, mean, my God, Wendell. Yes, actor. of course. He came to Ann Arbor, and I was like, Wendell, oh, yes, can, of course. I still can't get in touch with him. Wendell, Wendell, <laughs> damn it, Wendell, you remember me. <laughs> you remember me. I mean, we and some wonderful, you know, dancers that we were and just so many, you know, so many wonderful people that we were just – interacting with and sharing and like doing the things we were doing when we were young. And, um, and that kept it going. I mean, school was, school was a part of it, you know, but it was really just, it was, it was almost like youthful naivety, you know, where, you know, the reality hadn't yet sunk in, you know? So it, it was a lot of fun in some respects while you were getting, pardon my French, your ass kicked, you know? Yes. Okay. So you are such a raw talent. And mm-hmm. back then you just could play anything uh, actually by ear. Yeah, um, yeah. I want to touch on that. Uh, well, <laughs> I think you drove your, your, your teachers a little crazy. Tell me about your piano lessons, why you got so frustrated. <laughs> well, you know, um, it's a very, there's, there's, pretty much one road in a conservatory like that. And it's strictly the stage and it's strictly the highest of success. You know, pianists, you play with an orchestra, the standard repertoire, you know, working on, working on your technique, working on solo repertoire. If you were going to play in the concerto competition, you'd work on a concerto. If you, you know, were going to a competition, you'd work on some concertos. But it was there. It was it was standard repertoire to get you through the program. It was very traditional, and um, my teachers were coming from the great nineteenth-century piano schools. I mean, you know, you, you mentioned a guy like Joseph Rafe. Joseph Rafe studied with um, Arthur Schnabel, who studied with Theodore Lechitsky, who studied with Carl Cherney, who studied with Beethoven. I mean, that was one of the most impressive lineages that, you know, I was a little bit humbled to be in the same, in the same space with. But I have to say that a lot of um, what I took away was what I found within. That's what my, my studying taught me to rely on myself and to, that I was always responsible So I got in the Philharmonic, I was 20 years old. And then a few years later, there was a, there was an opening for principal and there was an opening for associate principal at the same time. And that, that was Kurt Mazur's first two hires were Cindy Phelps and promoting me for the second chair I auditioned for it. Um, And the Boston Symphony called me and they said, we heard that you had a, a terrific audition. We'd like you to come play for us for principal. And I had a brand new, baby. How old was Brian? I don't know, a year and a half, two, something like that. Uh, he's now 32. And I said, well, not knowing. I mean, honestly, this is how naive I was. I didn't know that 
second chair in any given section, particularly in the strings, um, and maybe even most of all in the viola section, I don't know, is the hardest job in the orchestra, meaning you have to be prepared to play the solo at all times. And it has happened two weeks ago, Cindy something had an emergency in her family, and I got a call at nine o'clock at night saying, you're playing Pulcinella tomorrow. And I guess because of COVID, I just sort of forgot my role of having to learn the part just in case. So I had just had a big gin and tonic and I was like, uh, okay, no problem. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and I went and I pulled out, uh, pulled Janella and, um, and learned it and it was fine and it was fun. But anyway, back to Boston, I said, well, I've got this new kid and I have this job and associate principal is enough for me. I think principal would be too much. Well, hello, no. Principal, you get a lot more time off. You get a lot more money. If anybody wants anybody to do anything, you know, teach or go on tour or play a solo somewhere or chamber music, whatever, they call the principal. And if the principal can't do it, then, um, you know, if you're practically married to her like I am, she'll throw it in your way. It's fine. I, I adore her and, and um, appreciate it. But all, all I'm saying is was I didn't know. And I thought, nah, I'm not going to do this. Then... Um, this stuff came up in, at the Philharmonic. It was kind of political, and I was a little bit annoyed with the Philharmonic. So I called Boston about a week before, maybe not even a week. And I said, if it's okay, I'd still like to come up and play for you. And they said, sure. So I went up, and this is the second instance of not caring whether I, or not expecting to get the job. My husband at the time said to me, if you get this job, I'm not going to Boston. And I, I said, I'm not going to get the principal job in the Boston Symphony. I just want to get in the finals so that the Philharmonic will take me seriously. And I went up there and it was so cool actually to be in my hotel room and then to be backstage and having my music on the stand. And I would look at something and I'd say, oh, I'm ready. This is ready. Oh, I got this. Oh, this one I know. I know. There was no nerves, no doubt that I had everything under control. It, that doesn't happen often. That's not the kind of person I am normally, but this was like, it was a great lesson about how prepared you need to be so that you have absolutely no worries. Um, and it helps that you have no idea that you can possibly win the job. <laughs> so uh, I played and then there was a super finals and then they came and got me and they said, you got the job. And, um, I called my husband and I said, um, are you sitting down? I won the job. And he said, well, congratulations, but I'm telling you right now, I'm not moving to Boston. I remember so, all that. Yeah. I loved the hall. I loved the people. I loved uh, even the relationship with Seiji. People said, oh, he doesn't usually take to somebody that easily. And anyway, it was, it was cool. But um, ultimately, I had a small child back in New York, and you couldn't take the child out of the state of New York without the permission of the other parent who wouldn't give it at the time. And um, so I just kept telling myself, I'm a mother before I'm a musician. And, um, and I turned it down. A year later, they called back and said, we haven't found anybody. Please reconsider. We still want you. And I was like, ha, this doesn't happen. I got to do this. If I don't do this, you know, I don't know how I'm going to live. So we went and I loved every minute of it, um, except I wasn't with my son. And so I, um, again, we tried, we tried, I got lawyers and the whole thing. And it just, I just, we couldn't make, I couldn't make it work in red. If I had to, um, if I had to, what's the word, uh, advise someone who was in the same position, I'd say, make it work. You'll, you'll figure it out, but make that work. Do that and then it make everything else fit around it because, you know, Tanglewood for me, Boston for me, Boston Symphony for me was more than just a great orchestra. I had gone to Tanglewood for three summers, which no, at the time nobody had gone three summers. It was everybody went for two summers. Right. I was there 86, 87. I went three times and it, it was a big deal. Uh, when? 82, 3, 4? Okay. No, four, five, 3, 4, 5. Okay, five, we did not overlap. I remember no, that. Mm -hmm. Three, four, five, because in, in 85, that's when I met my husband. And that was the last summer that I was there. And then I got the job that fall in the Philharmonic. Crazy. Yeah. Wait, can you tell the story about what happened after Juilliard? We talk a lot about that on, on this podcast. 
Well, you know, that was the fork of the road, you know, at the road. It was like, okay, that was this. Now what's reality? What are we going to do? And um, I, you know, my, fortunately, my, both my parents were musician um, educators. I'm proud to say that they both um, met at Radio City. Um, my dad was in the orchestra and my mom was a singer. So, and my mom was um, a graduate of the Juilliard School and as a vocalist. And at a certain time, my father sat me down and said, you know, son, <laughs> something like from Animal House, you know, it's like, okay, what are we going to do here? And um, he said, um, you know, and he had me look into Columbia and I went up to Columbia and um, I focused on theory and some composition and some academics and and things started to come together and it was a, it was really a big breathing experience because Juilliard was so intense and um a small community and Columbia was a very open campus and um it allowed me to breathe and to um become more of myself you know and to uh not always be against and in pursuit and trying to be somebody else's talent or as good as somebody else, but be myself. You know, I just, I, I got more involved with, um, with really my connection with music literature and grammar and, you know, and, and understanding the finer points of what we were studying, not just performance, but the actual music. I got involved. I, I started writing some music and I started to, um, create some bands and I was told to um, just get like a New York City substitute teacher's license. Hey man, you can, you know, you go make 150 bucks a day. And I was like, oh, all right, well, whatever. I don't, I don't know. This is, there's one thing in the world I never sought to be. One thing in the world, I keep saying, I would have punched you right in the face if you would have said, you're going to be a teacher when you grow up. I would, have, I would have jumped on you and it would have been, it would have been ugly, damn ugly. It really, I, really. So um, that's a true story, kids. I got this, I got this um, little temporary license and I literally got a phone call. And the next day I went in. And that was 33 years ago. And I started a career teaching. And, um, and I just remember us um, at Juilliard at the time, right next door, the High School of Performing Arts was just going up. It opened up in 1984. And we were all very aware. We knew some friends who, um, who were going there. The McDermott sisters, man, I mean talk about a, a talented group of people, they were circulating. I was at Manhattan School of Music before in pre-college. So, um, so we would see those people and talk to them and hang out. And it's like, what is this school? It's so cool. You know, that's the fame. That's the fame building. The fame school. That's you know? right. And, um, and I'm like, I want to get to that building. So I, you know, I found, you know, went through some channels, met with some people Took some interviews and here I am. And um, and it truly has been rewarding. And I I honestly couldn't be happier with my career choice. My life was, you know, expect the unexpected. You know, and all of these things were the unexpected. You know, the dreams of the dreams of going to Juilliard and becoming a concert pianist was a dream. Um, and it was youth, youthful, you know, hope. And, you know, it kind of spurred me to get it together and go for it and audition and get into it. And I couldn't be happier. So, um, you know, got kicked around a little here and there. But here I am. But I think that's what makes us better teachers, to be yeah. able to tell the stories. Yes, yes.
I remember a, a, a Boston CVS running through and you, you would set off all, do you remember this? You'd set off, you had this sport where you would set off all the toy toys that yeah, it was you probably could. close to it was probably to, close to christmas and so there are all those plush animals when you squeeze their feet then they'd start singing christmas carols or something well you would do all the games and all the toys and they'd all go off at once right and then i'd probably run out of the aisle and leave you there so that yes. someone would look and get you in trouble <laughs> <laughs> exactly well i ended up buying the insultinator mm-hmm. and it's george carlin's voice do you have an insultinator from that event no okay i I have to change the batteries and uh, call, call you and just insult your your cell phone. <laughs> take a take a number. <laughs> yeah, uh, Becky, teach us about humor. I mean, let's find the joy in music. That's what I love about you. You're so joyous. So, what makes you grab your friends during COVID and say, "Let's play Peter and the Wolf," or let's let's teach everyone? Uh, That's very joyful and humorous. What makes you do that instead of the serious stuff? I do all the serious stuff. <laughs> I know. I can't do the serious stuff. I don't know if I, I don't know. I don't know. That's a good question. I never really thought about it. Why do I do it or, uh, or how do I do it? Um, Where stuff does comes it, to me. What's your why? Yeah. What's uh, your why? My why is why not? That's my why. You know, that's all. Why not? Why not do it? No one else is doing it. I'm not doing it for that reason. It's not like, hey, what is nobody else doing? It's just what I do. It's like when we're playing a German Requiem at the Philharmonic, which we haven't done in a long time. We're not playing with choir right now because they'll be spewing, you know, their particles at us. But in any case, when we would have a chorus and they're singing um, in uh, German, to me, I would hear different words in English. So I would go around to all my stand, not my stand partners to my, in my stand partner, uh, on my part, I would write the words. Sometimes they weren't clean, but anyway, they were ridiculous, but they did sound like what they're singing in the choir. So I'd put it in a cello part. I'd put it in a couple of violin part, anybody that I could see on the stage and I'd stick it in there. And, uh, we'd get to that part in the performance and I'd see everybody sort of lean towards their music, like, what the heck? And then try not to laugh for the next half hour. So that was really fun. <laughs> um, I don't know. I'm just the imp. I'm the cut up. I'm the class clown. That's how it's always been. And I, you can't really, uh, you can't take that out of somebody. So I just, you know, if, uh, the, the Peter and the Wolf thing, I don't know how that really came to me. I just knew that TikTok only had a minute. Yeah, nine, 59 seconds. I found out later that it's only 59 seconds. So I f- figured um, it would be pretty easy just to take a little, you know, da, 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 that's all you need. And you know, it's the violin part. That's all you need for the flute, right? And I got my friends. What's very interesting actually about TikTok to me and about playing with my friends or recruiting my friends is I have found that not only are they willing to do it, but some of them are actually eager. I mean, I've gotten phone calls or, or emails or texts or whatever from people saying, can I do a TikTok with you? And this is somebody that I would have been happily begging to have them do it. Um, you know, so that's been a very pleasant surprise. You've, and you've had chamber music too, right? A little bit, yeah. Yeah. yeah I did um, Ari Rong. And you know what you learn as you go, because if you'll pardon my French, if you fart in a tube on TikTok, it goes crazy. But if you do something serious and complicated, I did um, something with, I got all these people together. Some of them are in jazz from Lincoln Center, you know, Winton's band. I mean, really phenomenal players. And this band put the band together. Actually, this one that I'm talking about, I had recorded the viola part. It was for Valentine's Day earlier this year, in February this year. And, um, what was the song? It was, um, L is for the way you look at me. You know, that song. L, um, and I recorded it on viola planning to plug in the viola part after I have all these other band parts put together. Well, I did it and the viola, it sounded so stupid to just have a little viola part playing with these great jazz players. So I ended up having to sing it because there was no time it was going to be valentine's day the next day i had to get it done so i, I sang remember it remember that yeah oh god sing. it's terrible because i don't i can sing hiding behind humor i just i'm not a singer so that you know you but what i'm saying is uh, and it also didn't get a ton of views it got an, enough that i wasn't unhappy but i don't do it like i said i'm not looking for the views i'm not doing it for the views but um but something like that people aren't interested no matter how much work you put into it no matter how artistic they want short and sweet and funny. 
And sometimes the cruder, the better. And, and I'm, you know, I'm trying not to do that because I'm, I have a kid audience. I mean, I'm not above um, putting a bendy straw under my armpit and blowing in it. So you hear, you know, out the back of my armpit, I'll do that. <laughs> but um, yeah. your students a little bit, how you're preparing them for the future. I guess I get asked that a lot. How can you teach everyone uh, without, you know, a vision for each person to be in music? And my answer is they, they don't have to be in music, but boy, this teaches them a lot about life and about success. And if you did want to be in music, you know, you could invent yourself. You're dealing with ages 15 to 18, a yeah. very yeah. impressionable age. Mm -hmm. And so can you, can you speak to that? How are you preparing them for a future? You're in New York city. Everything is good. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I would say the most important thing I can do is what I said was my, my learning environment, which was like an impre an impression of greatness, an impression of what being great is um, an impression or the, the, need for you to be accountable to yourself. And, um, and that's, you know, what I, the tone, it's the tone, you know, and it's also, it's also though, you know, there's reality. And, but I try to, I try to give reality, but real also, you know, um, uh, I, I, you can't, like you say, it's you can't be nasty in today's world. You have there has to be a certain sense of 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 somehow supporting. Um, but the students who are really have the talent, you have to make them aware. And look, my uh, you know, I'm speaking about Stephen Hoff, one of my one of my one of the most like mind blowing moments in my life was our first year at school and Stephen, we were hanging out, we were hanging out in the room, we were playing for each other and Stephen walks in and he says, Hey guys, you know, you mind if I, I play through the, <laughs> this is real. <laughs> mind if I play through the four Chopin ballads? <laughs> we're like, oh, we're like, go for it, Steve. <laughs> and he sat down and he played through all four of these and you know, okay, the first one was like, damn, that was good. <laughs> the, second, the second one was like, that was good too. <laughs> and the third one was like, that was really good too. And then the fourth one, it was just like, oh my God, this is, yeah. guy is phenomenal. Like, who is this guy and who is this talent? And my point is, is that it was reality. It was like the little fish just got into the big ocean, you know, and I have to, I have to let those students know that guys, however good you think you are in our little, you know, our little cozy community here. And with us patting you on the box backs and saying, you're wonderful. You might have this moment when you go out there and that understand somebody is always going to be better than you, okay? So, which means you got to dig deep into what you want to do, who you want to be, okay? And have some tunnel vision. And most of all, love what you're doing. And if you don't, if you're going to question, if you question, I mean, I'm dealing with parents all the time. Should my kid go into music? Should they? And I, you know, should they? And I'm like, I'm like, you know, if first of all, you almost feel like saying, why don't you let them make that decision? Okay. Uh, which, which they don't let their kids make decisions today. Um, but second of all, if the student is sitting there and saying, should I go into, I say, that's the factor there, or that's, that's the question that defines the moment. If you're asking if you should go into this, then you probably shouldn't because this was, and I, and I have to say this, we talk about our, 
who we are and our identities these days. And we don't really talk about truly the wiring of artists, that it's a wiring, that this is who we are. It's not something we choose. And I don't say that lightly. It's, it's really, it's, it's a, it's a brain, you know, function. And, um, and uh, so, you know, these are, these, this is the tone that I'm getting across to them. But also, I, I, I know that I am just, I love my music. And if I talk about music, you'll see me getting buzzed from that conversation. Um, and they pick that up, you know, I just, we, we love our music, you know, the, um, the endorphins that comes from, um, from the, the activity and, um, just, we are, we're, we're really blessed. We're blessed to, um, be able to do this and to experience this because some people don't get to connect, you know, with the world, you know, yeah, we, we get to, yeah. Yeah, we get yeah. to play music. Yeah. And to experience one of the greatest, you know, one of the greatest creations of the human mind, without a doubt. You can't say that lightly. And you can't, you can't express that enough or well enough to how profound, you know, it is. And it's, you know, it's, of course, it's not, people don't get it, but we're lucky that we do. So that's that's part of my tone. And um, I think the ones just like we all met up with each other and we turned each other on to music and propelled each other. You know, they get to hang out with people with the same spirit and it it sets them off also. So that's the most important, important thing, I think, is the tone and your passion, you know, and everything after that becomes, you know, um, just the, the second part of the process. I, I walked past Juilliard on Friday. Wow! And it's well, it's weird. It's 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 different. It's different. Um, um, well, of course, it's forty years later. Um, but as you, you know, I remember as you go further west, back in the day, it was it was dark. There were there were owls. There were you you were going to the river. You know, That's right. now it's developed. They're all the way to the west side buildings. And I've watched. We used to go to that hamburger place. What was the great hamburger place right around the um, Pats? Pats. Cold beer. Yeah. Hamburgers, the greatest hamburger. Beautiful, juicy hamburger. I mean, I don't even remember where that was because it was such a different world. There was there was um, the uh, old old the diner. On Broadway, what was it? Um, oh, I can't remember now. Um, there was a little diner on Broadway. I know. We went there all the time. Shoot. And that old, oh, that moved over to Amsterdam Avenue. That's right. So, you know, everything, everything has has changed. We used to hang out. There was this bar. It was called, I think, Chips or something that was... Yeah. And across from ABC, and we'd see all the ABC people come in. But you'd see the Rat Pack there, too. You'd see uh, 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 Molly Ringwald and all these guys. They were hanging out back. (laughs) But that's what was so cool. We'd go there, and they were hanging out. They're like, hey, it's the big city. We're like, yeah, I know. It's the big city. Isn't this fun? Yeah, we went to comedy clubs. We went to the Blue Note. We went everywhere. If if it was anybody I could count on, it was Bob. (laughs) I used to, one of my roommates, if I'm not holding you up now, one of my roommates, Renee, who was an actor um, who I lived with up in the Heights, we'd always walk around and we'd see Tony Randall. And he used to always, he used to always, when he saw Tony Randall, he'd say, hello, Mr. Randall. And Tony would sit there and say, why, hello. So I kept seeing and I would just, (laughs) hello, Mr. Randall. And he was like, I keep seeing you, you know, almost like, leave me alone. But it was Tony Randall. I know. Super fun. Super fun. It was. It was. And I wouldn't trade that as much as I, you know, as much as my my ass got kicked from time to time. You know, it it was a learning experience. It was um, it was I met some of the greatest people. 
You and I are creating students. So I appreciate that. Thank you for these great recruits that are coming to Michigan. I adore them. They are self-sufficient. They, they're, they're developing their own sense of self. So congratulations on your end. I, I really wanted to say that publicly too. Congratulations. Well, thank you for your insights and your stories. Super fun. Thanks for being in Porter Flute Pod. Absolutely. I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad you made this happen. Lastly, talk about you had an injury and you've been coming out of it. So, you know, a lot of people have injuries. And they don't want to talk about it. And you had to actually take time off. So what happened? Well, uh, the good thing is that we weren't really playing all that much yet. This happened February 18th of this year. I was walking the dog. There was a fresh snow that was just start. It had just started and it was covering the ground. And I was a bunch of blocks from here. Um, that's one benefit uh, during COVID, my my darling dog got much longer walks than he ever did before. And he wasn't pulling me. I just happened to step on black ice under this fresh snow. And my feet went forward and my rest of me went back and I landed on my wrist. And I knew instantly, I was on the phone with my best friend and, and uh, I said, oh my God, it's gone, it's gone. And she said, what's gone? I said, I broke my wrist, I'm sure of it. And uh, went to the hospital and sure enough, it was multiple fractures across the, both of the big bones in the wrist. And it wasn't displaced at first, but after a couple of weeks and I guess a third x-ray, because they follow it closely, there was like a pizza wedge piece from those multiple fractures that had just dropped away and I needed surgery really quickly. Uh, I was scheduled the next day for my first COVID COVID, uh, vaccine. So I went and I got that and then I went and I had my pre-op stuff and I went in the next day and had this extensive surgery where he had to, so there are six um, screws and a plate and they had a rebreak bone. It was traumatic. It was bad. It was, and very painful. Um, but I've just been very methodical about the, all of the, uh, physical therapy and, um, I'm almost all the way back. There is right so far. Okay. So I play a very big viola. I play a Magini that belongs to the orchestra that I acquired, um, way back when a piece was written for Cindy and me by Sophia Gubaidulina. If there are any people here who know Gubaidulina, it's not Gubaidulina. Gubaidulina, just so you know, that's how you say it. I know her. So, <laughs> um, anyway, so we played, uh, that's when I got my instrument because Cindy had just gotten this Gaspar de Salo, this million dollar instrument. So I went, I found this thing and the orchestra purchased it for itself and for me to play. And I've played it all this time. It's 17 and a half inches long, which you guys don't really know. But the one that I normally play is 16 and a half. And I know it's only an inch, but it's tremendous. It's a tremendous difference, not just in sound, but it's also wide and it's it's big. And I cannot reach some of the upper register on that instrument. So far, I haven't really had to. I did go back to playing it um, maybe this month. But... Um, because it's so much better than the one I otherwise would be playing my own instrument. I think the best therapy for me, physical therapy, is actually playing. That has helped a lot. Yeah. Just, just doing the, the bending and stretching and, and, and uh, I have a dowel that I hold like I'm holding it as a fiddle. And then I take um, the part that's in my left, I broke the left hand. So if I'm holding one end there and the other one near my chin and just sort of torque my arm with it, just push it against push against that. That's one piece of therapy. And I had some other equipment that I needed to use, a, you know, strength ball and whatever. But the most uh, important physical therapy has been to play, to actually play, because then I know exactly what is missing. Every I can live my life happily. I went camping this summer when I wasn't even playing much yet, because I had the strength in the hand and the, and, uh, and the wrist, but I didn't have the flexibility. That's That's been the biggest challenge.
maybe this will force my hand to do this mm-hmm. viola mom thing full time. And I did some more TikToks. It wasn't uh, quite the same, but because um, I like to play while I'm doing those, uh, I think it's more fun, more interesting to watch. But um, Becky, I, I don't have TikTok. I got rid of it. Is that okay? Uh, that's smart. Can you just yes. put it on Instagram? Can you, I love I love my little Instagram. That's I all. you know what I I would do that in a heartbeat. And I've got to say, I've deleted tick. I shouldn't say this. I've deleted TikTok three times because it sucks me in. And then it keeps me up till three o'clock in the morning. Cause I just swipe and swipe and swipe. I've gotten great recipes. I've seen some really funny things, but I've also spent a whole lot of time that I don't have otherwise that I should be putting towards getting a website or practicing yeah. or, you know, washing my left leg or something. And I'm not just, um, yeah, it takes a lot of time. So I'll put it on Instagram. I also, somebody else said to me, you should be putting all this stuff on YouTube. So I started trying to put it on YouTube. For sure. I, just don't know I will help produce you, Becky. I got it. Because we're, <laughs> okay. the same, we're the same age and we forget to post. We don't have the time to post. Actually, right. I, I pay someone. Oh God, here we go. Yes, but I have a, I have a staff of one. I pay yeah. every month and she's amazing. She's one of the co-producers of Porter Flute Pod. And I just feel like I have no time at my age, uh, you know, to, to spend time doing that. It's, it's a bit of a waste and I have too many things going on. I, I, I love social media for bringing us closer together and seeing right. my students' children and their food and those recipes and just everything. It's great. So let's use it for all the great purposes. Thank you for your for your stories. This was necessary, I think, for for us to kind of get clear on the viola mom, you know, concept because people just laugh and laugh and laugh at your humor. And I really want you to keep going and remember that we need you uh, out there in the, in the social media world. You don't need to get sucked in by it, but you do need to contribute to it. Thank you for being my story time guest. It was so fun. My pleasure. Thank you, Becky. Thank you, Bob, for being on Porter Flute Pod today. I thank you also for being with me by my side in those formative years. Don't forget to look at the person next to you when you're in school and thank them for being a friend. I appreciate you being a friend and being here listening to three seasons of Porter Flute Pod. We will see you in season four. We've got some wonderful ideas ahead. You can find me at amyporter.com or porterflute.com. And on Twitter, YouTube, Instagram, and Facebook, I'm Porterflute. Thanks for being in Porterflute Pod. I'm so grateful for you.